Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hi, Maeve. Wait, remind me how to pronounce your name. It's a jam. Oh, no. (laughs) You know my name. You've been on this podcast before. But you are not Catherine. I'm not Catherine. No, Catherine's in a car, famously. (laughs) (laughs) Driving across the country to get away from this podcast. (laughs) In case anyone missed last week, Catherine is on a pan-American tour (laughs) and (laughs) finds herself without service so she says, and unable to speak this week. (laughs) And so I'm calling Maeve, Maeve Higgins, my friend, a contributing writer at the New York Times and co-host of the podcast Mothers of Invention, Mm -hmm. which is excellent, and recently returned to the U.S. during the pandemic from Ireland, where she was staying with her family. Why, Maeve? I love bodega coffee. Mm. I actually do. <laughs> but um, I mean, I do live here in New York and I have lived here for almost eight years now. I felt like I was, I had to come home, if right. you know what I mean. Yeah. I would also add that I, for visa reasons, I had to return. You don't have to justify so, it to me. I, I'm glad <laughs> you're back. I wanted you to come back. I know, but it is, you know, like Ireland has, that certainly when I left, it had the lowest rate of coronavirus in Western Europe. It's still it's still down there. They've had um, a couple of outbreaks recently, but it's, you know, it's a pretty secure place to be. I mean, I talked to you and Catherine when I was in Ireland and, you know, it was almost farcical how safe and cute it was compared to, you know, the kind of horror that was unfolding here during the, um, well, that continues to unfold. Um, so yeah, but I did come back. Yeah, you were overlooking cows, as I recall, this sort of pastoral landscape. Yeah, we were completely in shelter in place mode and the worst of it in New York. It seemed like you definitely had made the right choice. But now you're back. Yeah, I came back to see if New York was over. <laughs> <laughs> and no, you found a thriving city. Well, what what's striking about coming back? You know, you. Uh, mm-hmm. How long were you gone? Just a basic factual. Yeah, I I was gone for almost three months. So I left March and then I was gone for most of March, April and May. And then I thought, okay, I I need to go back. But because of the travel ban, I couldn't fly directly back. I could either go through Canada or go through Mexico, right? Because I'm a visa holder. If you're an American citizen like you, Jim, you constantly (laughs) got that tattoo. (laughs) You talk all the time about, you know, your passport and your citizenship. And it's a big part of your identity, I think. Yeah. Well, but I, I don't have a lot else going for me. <laughs> this is what you normally say. I'm a blonde American. Because mm-hmm. you're blonde and, and you're an American. <laughs> I'm a doctor. I'm a blonde American doctor. Yeah. But I can't say any of those things. Um, so I remember this. You were, you were staying in Mexico for a while, which I was surprised to hear. Yes. If you're coming from any of the banned areas, which is really a lot of the world right now, you have to go and spend 14 days in 
in my case in Mexico, first I tried to go to Canada because in Canada, the rates were a lot lower. And at that time in early June, actually Mexico City was the epicenter of the virus. The rates were very high there, <laughs> but I had to go there. Yeah. And so you had to go there. from Ireland where there was very little virus mm-hmm. to a place where there was a lot in order to get into the U.S. Yeah, I did. And it's hard to explain that to people, but it's always hard to explain immigration rules to Americans because they're not logical. Like truly, they're not logical and they haven't been for a long time. Now, this is a new level of insanity that like makes people come through Mexico. It was kind of an unnecessary risk. Yeah, not to mention just spending two weeks... That, I mean, that's a very long journey for you. You could have come over in an old sailing ship, as I understand it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it did uh, when I was in Mexico City. And I should say that I'm really grateful that Mexico was letting travelers through because Canada wasn't. Like when I got to the airport in England um, and I had a flight to Canada, the airline wouldn't let me on the plane and they were just doing it in a very Canadian way. Like they have a travel ban too, but they just don't really talk about it. So I (laughs) wasn't aware. (laughs) I mean, I just think it was two extra long haul flights that I didn't need to take and two weeks in a place that I didn't need to be just to kind of come home again. And I quarantined when I got back, but Jim, it was almost comical how little attention they paid this full flight arriving from Mexico City into JFK. We had a form to fill out, you know, at the airport in Mexico City, but nobody took the forms from us when we landed at JFK. And then I just watched as we all kind of like picked up our bags and (laughs) dispersed into the city that had just been through, you know, such a terrible time with the virus. It's worrying. Yeah, you were really responsible, but there's not a check in place. Yeah, I abstained from French kissing pretty much everybody. Mm -hmm. that entire two weeks and as you know that's really hard for me because that's really how I communicate yeah I think that's just how it's done in Ireland right (laughs) yeah French kissing that's what where the term comes from (laughs) (laughs) so you um a lot of your work has focused on immigration is the current moment highlighting anything that you've kind of been seeing as an issue for a long time Yeah, I've been writing about immigration and, you know, learning about immigration for years now. And it's certainly interesting to see that the travel ban has now been kind of reversed and put on the U.S. And there are very few places in the world now where you can get in freely with an American passport, which is very different how it usually is. It's such a powerful passport, usually. That's why I have the tattoo. That's why you have it. Of the passport. And it's unusual. Yeah, just the back of your neck. It's yeah. But, you know, I think it's kind of a new feeling for Americans not to be able to travel as freely as they used to. And again, I mean, my trip certainly highlights like the privileges I have as a European traveler still because the land border with Mexico is close to asylum seekers, but I was able to just, you know, fly over it as a visa holder. Mm-hmm. So some things remain the same. Um, but I do, yeah, I think a lot has changed. And being back here for the past, you know, month and a half now, it's kind of amazing to just watch Ireland returning more and more back to normal and people just living their lives and going out for food and 
<laughs> like I'm like describing regular life as if it's magical, but you know, they're like hanging out, having going to gigs and enjoying the summer. By gigs, do you mean comedy shows? Yeah, comedy shows, music is back, um, live music. Like people are being careful and they're still distancing and it's outside, but it's the rates are way, way lower in Ireland. So the majority of people, yeah, they're just living their lives. They're seeing family and friends. They're having barbecues. And lots of people are French kissing. <laughs> they're all French kissing families, yeah. Um, <laughs> sounds, sounds weird. Did, uh, Maeve, you are also a comedian. Mm-hmm. Did you do gigs? Um, me and my friends, you know, we have this regular show every Monday in Brooklyn that we were doing online uh, since March. Famous show in Brooklyn. <laughs> it's called Butterboy, and we kept Butterboy going. But then in the summer, comedy usually kind of drops off anyway. So we took a break um, for July and August. Like, if you think about Comedy Gym, for it to really work, you need to be indoors. Like, you need a roof because otherwise the laughs just vanish. And yeah. people need to laugh, which I don't know. Do you know? Is laughing as bad as coughing for, like, spewing particles? Oh, interesting question. I don't think it's been studied, but I assume, yeah, any sort of forcible exhalation <laughs> through the, the pharynx would do it. But I, I know laughing is also really important for our health and well-being. And mm. it is a serious shame not to have shows like yours happening. And then, you know, doing them outdoors or online is just fundamentally, it fundamentally changes the experience. I know, mm-hmm. especially for comedy. I mean, you, I remember you did a show outdoors at Lincoln Center, and you said that, <laughs> you know, you bombed horribly. <laughs> just because the you don't have the energy of this small room. Like, there's a reason that all the big comedians still go to these tiny clubs in the West Village. Yeah, because it's a dialogue. When it's done correctly, it's a dialogue. It's not just, you know, the comic on stage just spouting off. You have to read back what the other person is saying, like in any conversation, you know, so the audience is like this other being and you're communicating with them. Um, Mm. And that's how you know, like, if you're headed in the right direction or what are the sore spots. So, yeah, I did that show, like, I think it was last year. And it was, yeah, like outdoors at the Lincoln Center. And it was this huge stage. And then just almost like, I mean, I'm sure in my mind, I've made it a lot bigger. I Now when I like think about it, I think of like a stadium full of, like, sort of like a Roman amphitheater full of people whose thumbs are like wavering between like thumbs up and thumbs down. Oh, thumbs down being like, I die. Down. Yeah, the guillotine, <laughs> an old Irish tradition. <laughs> And so outdoor gigs are awful. There's something about being in the dark too, that like people laugh easier and being in with a group of strangers where no one can really see each other. There's just this permission and it's this kind of little community that forms and disperses that I didn't realize like how much we relied on that until it was gone, you know? Yeah. You know, this is also obviously affecting politics because right now Mm -hmm. we're doing the DNC and we had all these politicians speaking into webcams presumably last night. Yeah. Michelle Obama gave a big speech and Bernie Sanders was standing in front of a pile of logs. Yeah, I I mean I uh I actually prefer that to be honest. Like I said, I love the exchange between a comedian and the audience. Yeah. But with a politician, 
I actually much prefer listening to them without an audience because all the cues are missing, like for us to just be kind of led along, kind of sheep-like, you know, like, well, they're all clapping. I guess it's good. I appreciate the breathing space that I get from just hearing them speak without everybody else's reaction crowding in. And I, I think this equally about listening to Donald Trump or listening to Bernie Sanders. It's like, yeah, of course, they're going to, all these people are going to be like, yeah, you know, it's like, wait, can I actually hear what you're saying? Mm-hmm. And I realize they both make really good points. Yeah, yeah. Just two <laughs> different sides of a coin. Oh, God. Um, well, so speaking of huge political moves and mm-hmm. of big live events, these big political conventions like the DNC are usually mm-hmm. cathartic live events. Like yeah. people are actually coming together, rallying around causes they care about, really clearly articulating their ideologies and their plans for the future and their big goals. But it's very different this year. It felt Mm -hmm. different. It feels different. You're missing live comedy. I miss going to your shows. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if political folks miss the live convention. And and you have some questions about whether America is going to be all right again or whether Mm -hmm. it's even going to be at least ever as good as it was. So the person I wanted to bring in is Jim Fallows. He's an Atlantic staff writer, a veteran of political campaigns, a speechwriter for Jimmy Carter. He's been on the show before and a brilliant person who always gives me hope. Yes. Greetings. Hi, Jim. Uh, this This is Jim also. You are, you are a Dr. Jim, much as my dad was. <laughs> so we, we have weird generation shifting here. <laughs> and and uh, I'd like you to introduce you to to Maeve Higgins, who is my co-host for the day. Or Dr. Maeve, as I'll call you. Hi. Thank <laughs> you. Is a doctor. <laughs> Thank you for, for talking with us, Jim. So as we speak, we're one night into the convention. How weird is it as a former presidential speechwriter to see things happening without audiences in our new pandemic Zoom world? It's really weird, but I think if we'd have been having this conversation 24 hours ago before this had happened, the first night it happened, um, I think we'd have a very different tone, or at least I would, because conventions have always been these bizarre combinations of state fair and freak show and prom. And, you know, they have no real reason to exist except people like to get together and they give a party free airtime on TV. And so the shift has been more radical than it might seem if you hadn't been these conventions before. But I thought that overall, it was only 10% as embarrassing as I expected, and 200% as effective. So I, I thought it was much more effective than most people would rationally have expected, you know, even five minutes before it went on air. Oh, wow. Mm. What made it so much more effective? Because we, we were just talking about live comedy, which Maeve does, and how ineffective that seems to be over Zoom calls or... Yeah, like you really miss the audience at a comedy show. But I didn't miss the audience with the politicians. I was glad that they were just kind of speaking to me. So I think that, you know, one thing that became obvious when this was being played out and it wasn't as obvious before it happened is that there was a fairly tight two times 
two-hour segment on TV as opposed to the hours and hours that these would normally go on. And the difference is there was never more than two hours of actual content in one of these five or six hour shows, but it was padded out with all this bloviation <laughs> yeah. and with, uh, you know, the, the anchors weighing in to say, well, this was good, this, this was bad. And so it was most of the kind of blubber was rendered out of it. And you had more planning on what, what they wanted to get across. Also, I think a point that should have been obvious 50 or 60 years ago and was also was even, you know, commented on when, when John F. Kennedy was learning how to use TV is that, TV is fundamentally a cool medium and intimate medium, and it's and the people who were appearing last night acted as if they understood that. And there's a very different way whether you're performing live in a comedy club or you're giving some you know speech someplace, or if you're orating in a an arena of twenty thousand people. There's a different yeah. just vibe to all of it than there is if you're delivering something you know just to camera. And I thought it was if they had actually thought <laughs> that there's not going to be an audience there. They, they had actually planned it. Wow. So that's a good thing to come of the moment. Uh, yes. I mean, it's a good thing in just the kind of immediate operational sense. It'll be interesting to see if Donald Trump can do with that deal with that when the Republican convention comes because he is a person who lives – for the arena of 15 or 20,000 people. Mm -hmm. And you can see him just kind of taking energy off the cheers. And I, I was at the Republican convention four years ago in Cleveland. That was a unforgettable and in a bad way experience. I was, I was on the floor during most of the big speeches, including Trump's, and just you could feel the energy coming off the thousands of people there mm -hmm. with their locker up chants and everything else. And so Trump will not have that. And so it's whether he can do what Michelle Obama and I think even Bernie Sanders effectively did of just talking intimately in the cool medium of TV without a crowd, as opposed to the hot medium that William Jennings Bryan and Donald Trump, despite their obvious differences, both uh, thrive on. Right. I, I guess that's how many of you thrive in the in the hot medium of a comedy <laughs> space. Yeah, but it's so true that that then doesn't, even if you're having a great time and you're vibing with the audience, that won't translate through the cameras because you're asking for it to go through one extra medium, right? right. Like you're asking us watching at home to enjoy watching these other people having the experience, whereas this just cuts that out. Yeah. Well, so I don't want to um, put too much weight on the change of technology that's changing the medium. But if Donald Trump is less likely to go on to tangents or to get people chanting because he likes that feedback in an arena and more likely to stay on scripted message reading into a camera, does that change? Could that actually change the political calculus? So, so who knows what will change anybody's view at this point? In my long history of having participated in elections, I've, I've never been aware of a case where so few people are in the swing voter category anymore. If there were an election today, the results would probably be the same as what they'd be in two and a half months from now. So, so who knows whether any of this makes any difference? And it probably is more mechanics of what the election laws are and how the postal system works, et cetera. But I think it's worth just from a performance point of view, recognizing how if Donald Trump has to speak the way Michelle Obama and Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar and all the other people who spoke did speak. It really puts him at a disadvantage because he is not good at this. 
the business of reading from a prompter, the language never sounds authentic to him, and he never sounds as if he's seen the material an instant before he's reading it. You know, it's all... <laughs> there might be a reason he sounds that way. <laughs> yes. It's why he has these weird little asides like, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> it's, <'cause> <laughs> he's reading something that he's never seen. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. So... <laughs> Oh, I wonder if he'll read anything that Michelle Obama said. Mm. Like if he'll just accidentally do what it's like yeah. to start to say things like it is what it is. And, and you know, maybe uh, Melania will. I don't know that she'll make another uh, appearance. Jared probably will. He's being wheeled out more in the last couple of weeks than he has been in all of the previous administrations. So I am wary of saying that any of this actually makes a difference. But from a political point of view, it was really notable that the Democrats, at least in day one, pulled things together. Um, usually the speech of the loser about the winner and the nomination fight is one of these um, pulling teeth, begrudged things. And Bernie Sanders' speech was not that. It sounded sincere and as if he was really trying to talk up Biden. So that that was interesting. And so Politically, they pulled things together for one night, and in technology, it was a, a giant step towards a different medium than these carnivals and state fairs that conventions have been so far. Yeah. You know, something that you said last time we spoke that has really stuck with me is that what people want out of a speech anytime, but especially in this moment, is empathy, confidence, and a plan. Those three things. A life as a speechwriter awaits you too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's it, that has actually helped me out in email correspondence and reassuring friends, all kinds of things, you know, not just speeches, but um, really helpful thing to keep in mind. Is that what you are seeing from either party? Right now? <laughs> Let, let's talk... <laughs> probably 90% about the Democrats. Um, I think that that it's become more and more evident that a lot of Joe Biden's appeal is not people who are in the abstract excited about him as the next person on Mount Rushmore or the next incarnation of FDR or Abraham Lincoln or anybody else, but as somebody who can convey a sense of personal normality which includes empathy, which I think comes naturally to him as a politician. You know, many politicians are naturally sort of outgoing, uh, work the crowd people, but also he has his own story, which I, I think he doesn't have to tell, his story of tragic loss, which I think he doesn't have to explicitly tell that many more times because people know it, but but that that's a lot. It's more of his message than it is other people that I, I think would say since Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, when he was first running in 1992 during, uh, you know, the, an economic downturn, then his essentially, I feel your pain before that became kind of a, a joke line that that was something that he was able to convey. So I think that there's a lot of empathy that is built in to Biden. There is a lot of we can be better than this confidence, long term confidence. That I think many of the visuals. Um, we're trying to get across. And I think the other element was a sort of take this seriously warning tone, which came across probably most from Michelle Obama, saying, yeah. don't mess around. This actually matters. Get out there and vote. I definitely got the sense of long-term preparedness from Bernie Sanders' stack of firewood. <laughs> 
Yes, he, he didn't. It's always better to show than to tell. <laughs> yeah, we are in this for the long haul. He didn't mean we're going to burn it all day. <laughs> Maeve, I'm asking too many questions. Well, I have a question, but I don't know how fair it is. But I do know, Jim, you know, that yourself and your wife took this trip around the country Um like, would you ha- um, advise an ideal place to like batten down the hatches over the winter if this continues? Like, is there a spot in the country where you were like, aha, it, it's safe it, here? There were many, many places we went that we had never considered previously to be garden spots where we'd want to hang out. For example, Greenville, South Carolina mm-hmm. is arguably one oh. of the nicest cities in the U.S. now. And I had no idea of that before we went there. And plucky little yeah. Pensacola is fighting its way up. I think if you were looking for a place uh, there, there, I would have this cognitive dissonance um, point that the state that seems to have gotten rid of the disease more than most others, and Jim, you'd know more about this than I, is, seems to be Maine. There aren't that many places in Maine that still have it. On the other hand, January in Maine is only for true believers. Um, I, I, I don't know any place that's going to be a real disease protector for the winter. So I think you, one chooses on other grounds and then tries. Um, a, a lot of places in Mississippi, um, there there are more places than you would think in Mississippi are trying to make themselves, uh, like Hattiesburg is, is an up and coming place with a high proportion of millennials in its population. So if you're looking for warmth, you can go to Hattiesburg. This is so useful. I literally didn't know about any of those places. That's actually incredible. Yeah. Jim is talking about Wisconsin, but I don't know. Well, that that is where I absconded to briefly mm-hmm. to see my family. And, and Wisconsin is is great too. Eau Claire, are you, are you around Eau Claire or where, where are you? Where is your family? Yeah, 100 miles north uh-huh. of that in the North Woods. So very isolated. <laughs> so you're looking at that those stacks of wood with new interest. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it gets very cold up there very quickly. That's the problem with it. I was I was going to ask too, just while I have you, I think hope can sometimes be kind of a saccharine word, but I wondered like coming through, you know, the late 60s and 70s in the US with all of the terrible things that happened, but then the great things that came out of it. Do you see a parallel now? Because one of the reasons I wanted to come back to America was this resurgence of the, you know, racial justice movement. Um, I think there are two very different kinds of the 60s that all sort of blur together now that this is a millennium in the past. But but as somebody who was a teenager and then college student through those times, that the late 60s, 68, 69, 70, that was a lot like the bad part of what we're going through now. And in many ways, it was, it was worse. I, I was realizing that I, I used to say, you know, to, to emphasize how the Vietnam War was getting people's attention, that a couple hundred Americans per week were dying there. Now I realize that sounds like nothing. Again, it's different when you have battlefield oh, casualties of young people, et cetera. But, but still, that was yeah. bad. And there were, you know, dozens and dozens of cities for the national uh, where there was, you know, actual, you know, burning down the cities. I think the what we'd like to, to look towards for elusive hope is the period from 1963 through 1965. 63, obviously, this terrible horror of John F. Kennedy's assassination, but it was also the time when the, the sort of, if you can use the word conscience of the country, and by which I mean 
the white country in positions of influence was affected by mm -hmm. the demonstrations in Birmingham, Alabama and the Selma. And that was when Martin Luther King and John Lewis and all the rest were on the news sort of bearing witness. And that led to the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 65. So I think that that, that is the hopeful parallel I would draw from the 60s. Something positive came out of that. The late 60s were something that people survived more. So let's look to 63 to 65. Yeah. To that end, last time you were on, we forced you into the comparison of 1968 and 2020. And you cited uh, saying that this the 2020 was was not at that point um, the, the worst year in uh, recent U.S. history. Do you stand by that? It, it becomes a more complicated comparison because in disease terms, obviously this is, is unique in the life experience of anybody who's, who's been around, around before. This president is objectively worse than Lyndon Johnson or Richard Nixon, and his party is objectively worse than either the segregationist, the still segregation sort of um, heavy Democrats of, the, of Johnson's time or the emergent Southern strategy Republicans of Nixon's time. And here would be the, the sharpest way to illustrate that, that um, I remember, you know, these, you know, many, many years later, my dad has just come to visit me in college in 1968. And we were out for a walk in, in, in Cambridge, and we went back in to the newspaper where I was working to look at the TV because I didn't have one in my room. And there was all this news coverage about how Lyndon Johnson had just announced that he was not going to run for reelection. And the tone of his speech was one that Donald Trump, if he were a normal person, could give tonight or last week or a week from now saying, this is a national disaster I recognize the strain that's being placed on all of our, our people. He was talking about Vietnam and the civil rights um, crises. Mm -hmm. And because I want to give my full attention to this, I am not going to waste a moment thinking about politics and I will not run for reelection. I will not accept it. I will not accept that. I shall not seek and I will not accept my party's uh, nomination to run for another term. And so even Lyndon Johnson, who has the tragedy of Vietnam forever on his hands, he decided for the nation's well-being that he would step down from what he had spent his entire life seeking. And he was only like in his late 50s then, but he seemed like he was 200 years old and weighed down by history. Imagine a president capable of doing that now, of giving a, a speech saying we have 170,000 people or more dying from this emergency, I'm going to focus all my energy on that. So I shall not seek and will not accept the nomination of my party. So that is what's finally different. And the Democrats of Johnson's time, the Republicans of Nixon's time, had more of an independent spine than the Republicans of Trump's time. So it's not worse. <laughs> it is worse. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's complicated, as the young people say. <laughs> okay. All right. No, I respect that answer. Things are complicated, but but speaking of speech writing, um, that and and that that was a direct to camera speech, right? It was, and like so many of history's great presidential addresses have been, and one that sticks with you, and maybe we'll have some more in coming 
weeks and months that will inspire and unify. It, 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 uh, yes. So let, let us hope. And also that, that speech was unusual in that I gather only two or three people knew what Johnson was going to say to end that speech, that, that it was a secret, you know, even to people in the room, you know, when he was uh, giving it, uh, certainly to the public, but to all but a handful of the staff. So that was high drama. So let us hope to be surprised in a similar way. Wow. Well, um, thank you so much for your insight and for for joining us, Jim. Uh, It's always a pleasure. And I wanted to say that I, on your recommendation, read uh, Theodore Dreiser's American Tragedy. Well, it's a a really long book. It's a very long book, (laughs) Um, which you said, I believe, that no novel needed to be written about the American idea after that one. And that was written in 1926. Could you just say a, a little bit more about what makes that story really so definitional of the American idea? Yes. You know, it was a tragedy. Is our story necessarily tragic? So it's a, a individual tragedy. It's a young man from this uh, kind of... Um, what we'd now call a working class or lower working class white family. His father becomes a sort of street corner preacher, et cetera. And he wants all of his life to sort of move up. And and so he, he marries, he uh, impregnates a young woman from uh, when he's working in, in a, in one of his uncle's factories in upstate New York. And at just that time, he sort of gets a glimpse of the high life, mm-hmm. of the more glamorous, upscale, rich uh, life. And so it is the, uh, without spoilers for the 800 and odd pages, um, he finds a way to get out of this working class romance he has and to attach himself to the fancy people. And that all comes undone. And I think everything about American class inequality and striving, and all the fine gradations of who stands where. If you're reading something about sort of disaffected Trump voters in 2018, you I, I contend you can see the forebears there. This has been, I think, all great American novels are about inequality and longing and striving and all the complications thereof. So that's my case, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> No, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting read. I prefer the shorter version of The Great Gatsby. Yes, uh, yeah. yes, that, that, that is true. <laughs> I'm going to read it. I literally have nothing else to do, and it sounds incredible, and I need to understand this country better. Maybe Go we'll talk through. about it during the and, long way. And I think, Jim, I also, in my defense, pointed out that Dreiser was, was arguably, sentence by sentence, the worst major writer in American history. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a tough sell. Like the, he's a terrible writer. So this is yes. an eight hundred page book about tragedy and striving. But so, so I give you Thomas Mann of the Magic Mountain, Joseph and his brothers. That's your yes. Next. I mean, I, yeah. and also sentence by sentence. Of course, I'm reading it in translation. The sentences are leaden, but the Magic Mountain, <laughs> fifty or sixty years after I first read it, I still think about. And even in the plague years. So yeah. so there's a special category of terrible great writers. It's as the, as the French concept of jolie laide or whatever it is, you know, the, the, the beautiful, the ugly, beautiful person or whatever. That's, yeah, exactly. Um, fugly. Yeah. I don't think, mm-hmm. do we have an English word for that? I don't think we do. Maybe it's Theodore Dreiser. <laughs> um, thank you so much for, 
for joining us. <laughs> thank, thank, you, thank you. Think, uh, Do you notice how he is not committing to read the Magic Mountain? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's a great and very long, very long book, bad sentence by sentence. <laughs> but but he won the Nobel Prize, I believe. <laughs> so there. <laughs> so thank you all for uh, for for what you're doing and for letting me join your little uh, traveling show. <laughs> I'm really glad to have you. Yeah, lovely to meet you. Thanks. Nice to meet you, Maeve. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Oh, I actually think you should read The Magic Mountain Gym or listen to it. Okay. Like, it's a, it would be such a break for you because it's such a different way than you normally think or communicate. It's, oh. It's wild. Yeah. You mean it's, like, not that funny? <laughs> it's, it's not funny. <laughs> it's not funny. It's really, it is, it is, like, ideas, which I think you would like, but it's also... Um, I mean, it's like set in a hospital, so that's, you know. Oh. Well, like a, a kind of a mental hospital. I think, yeah, I think maybe that could be your winter book. I do need one book to read for the winter. Um, <laughs> Maeve, are you uh, reassured about the state of America and your decision to return? Yeah, and I didn't mean to be completely hopeless. Like, I do think that the more... I understand about America's past, the more I understand like where we are right now. So that's why it's actually really useful to go back over our history and go back over where we've been as like a seeing instrument into where we're going. I do think that's really helpful. And like I said, like hope is kind of, it's a bit saccharine, isn't it? It's more like, okay, well, what are we going to do now? As opposed to like, oh, I hope it's going to get better. (laughs) Right. It's not a plan. Uh... Right. It's neither empathy, confidence, nor a plan. Nor a plan, yeah. I'm going to be looking out for you in conversation, trying those three strands out, now that I know that's what you've got in the back of your mind for successful communication. Well, I I understand your inclination to be looking out for something like that. Um, (laughs) But it's not the right thing to do, and here is what I would suggest. Oh, God. Um, Jim... Thank you for having me like as your co-host and I love what you and Catherine are doing and keep it up, please. Thank you so much for, for sitting in. Uh, Catherine will be back next week, assuming she has safely traversed the continent. <laughs> this show was produced today by Kevin Townsend. Please write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com or call us at 202-642-6487. If you like this show and want to access all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com forward slash support us. Bye, Maeve. Bye, my angel. (laughs) So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.